theyeshiva.net. Working with me many times on getting people into appropriate rehab facilities or dealing with legal issues. Someone who truly loves each and every person in Claudius Rome, the front of the children, has and continues to go out of his way to really make a difference, who honored us with coming here today, Reverend Wyla Jacobson. Somebody once asked me a fascinating question about a simple Hebrew word that actually made its way into the English language as well. The word is keruvim. Keruvim, or in English known as cherubs. And the word is introduced in Parshas Truma this week. When Hashem tells Moshe to construct an oren with the luchas, on top of the oren a kapoiris, a golden lid, and from the kapoiris, vasisa shnei kruvim, two figures, two golden images, should protrude upward, winged, persik nafayim lamayla, their wings are soaring upwards. But what are these kruvim, what do they look like? So what does Rashi say? Rashi says they have demustinoikos, it's the image of children, angelic, beautiful children, a boy and a girl facing each other with their wings upward, and that's why in English, cherubs actually means angelic children. Somebody asked me this question. The word kruvim is not introduced the first time in Parshas Truma. The word kruvim is introduced the first time in Parshas Bereshis. When Hashem expels Adam and Chava from Gan Eden, it says that he placed the Kruvim outside of the Garden of Eden. Take a look at Rashi. He says, you know what Kruvim are? Malache Chabala, which in simple English means agents of terror. A Mechabel, today in Hebrew, is a terrorist. Chabala are terrorists, acts of terror. Malache Chabala are Agents of terror, of destruction. The same word. In Bereshis, the Kruvim are agents of terror. In Truma, exactly the same word. Suddenly they are angelic children. They didn't put on the Aaron agents of terror. They put on top of the Aaron angelic children. How did the same word experience such a metamorphosis from Bereshis to Truma? Good question. I have another question. My second question is this. The word ish means a man. There's two ishes. One in the same, same issue, exactly the same paradox. In Parshas Vayishlach, it says Yaakov remains alone. Vayivoser Yaakov levadei, vayayovik ish imo adalos hashachar. A man wrestles with him till dawn break. So Rashi says, who is this man? And his answer is, Sarai shal Esav. Esav's spiritual angel. The next parsha, Vayeshev, Yosef is going to visit his brothers. He gets lost. Vayim tsa'ehu ish. An ish finds him. And says, Motavakish, what are you searching for? And Yosef says, I'm searching for my brothers. And he says, Your brothers, your brothers are elsewhere. You're gonna to have to forge your own path in life, as Rashi explains. The same ish. What does Rashi say? Who is this ish? 
Malach Gavriel. Gavriel. Same ish. In Vayishlach, it's Esav's, Esav's power. In Vayeshev, it's Malach Gavriel. A Malach of healing, of salvation. What happened? It's the same ish. It's the same kruvin. How does Rashi allow to, themselves to teach this child this transformation of meanings when they have the same word? I want to suggest, my dear friends, that the answer to both of these question, questions lay in this conference today and yesterday of Amudim. Ish is a man. Yaakov is alone. Yosef is alone. Yaakov is without his wives, without his children. Vayivoser Yaakov Levadi. In the middle of the night, you're alone. You're not in a large gathering. You're not in a classroom. You're not with other people. You're alone. Vayeovek Ish Imoy Adalois Hashachem. When Yaakov is alone, a man observing his vulnerable position, tackles him, wrestles with him, till dawn break, tries to kill him. He can't kill him at least. He maims him and he causes him to limp, which might have been a limp for the rest of his life, that he cannot stand erect any longer. That's one man. Yosef is also alone. And he's lost. He's also vulnerable. And a man finds him too. And another man finds him. But this man, instead of wrestling him, battling him, maiming him, crippling him, paralyzing him perhaps for life, until he discovers the son that can heal him, this man looks at this vulnerable child, 17 years old, and says, Matavakesh. What are you searching for? What's bothering you? And he says, I'm looking for brothers. I'm looking for camaraderie. I'm looking for family. I'm looking for relationships. Two types of men encounter the vulnerable child. One uses the vulnerability as a catalyst, as a springboard to attack, to battle, to wrestle until dawn break, until light shines and people show up. And people speak, he will try to cripple, if not kill, that youngster. The other man also sees a vulnerable child, but he says, what are you looking for? Matavakesh. So Rashi says, here the ish is, Sarish al And here the ish is, Malach Gavriel. The same word, but how they respond to vulnerability is extremely different. Well, we all know that this conference is at least a few decades late. In the sense that we, collectively, individually, have allowed vulnerable Yaakovs and vulnerable Yosefs and vulnerable Saras and vulnerable Rachels, whatever their name may be, wandering lost, Sayyab and the Ish, not everyone is an Ish who sees vulnerability as an opportunity to help, but others see vulnerability as a catalyst, as a springboard, as an invitation to attack. And the same difference exists in the word kruvim. It all depends on the context. In the first story of the kruvim, Adam and Chava are given boundaries in life. They're told, eat from all the trees, but that tree is off limits. 
They don't have those boundaries. They eat from that tree as well. They are expelled from Ganeden and there are Kruvim there protecting the Garden of Eden, which are agents of terror. In the second context, in Truma, the Kruvim are on top of an Aroin, which represents the Torah and the mitzvahs, the boundaries that the Creator imbued into the natural universe and into the Jewish soul. And the child who grows up on those Kruvim, the child who grows up on that Aroin, first of all has wings soaring upwards. What does that mean? How often has it been perceived that a deep connection with religion, with faith, with Judaism, with Torah, many of our youngsters will tell you, is about stifling you, repressing your creativity, crushing your individuality, and making sure you live a life of fear and dread of the punishments that await you. But the Torah says that an organic connection with the Aaron actually must cause that your wings soar that you fly, that the sky even is not the limit, that your ultimate potential and individuality can express itself in its deepest power, but that's only if you know the boundaries, you know the borders where you seize and the other person begins, you know the borders where another person ends and you begin, you appreciate the fact that there is the aspect that you own, that nobody could touch, just like there's the aspect that somebody else owns and you cannot touch, or as the Kotzke Rebbe famously said, 150 years before psychoanalysis, You want to translate? If I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, I am not I and you are not you. But if I am I because I am I and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. And I guess now we can begin to schmooze. The Kruven by the eight Sadas is the child who grows up with no boundaries, with no respect for the tree that's off limits because there's no respect for himself or herself. And that person becomes an agent of terror often. Meaning a person who absolutely doesn't recognize their value and hence their boundaries. The child who grows up in Parshas Truma on top of an Aroin, linked organically with the Aroin, not repressively, but organically, has wings that soar upwards. And that crew of Rashi says, is the seer of the Tinoik, the angelic child. Today we are here for two reasons. We are here to ensure that those vulnerable children lost and wandering in the streets don't fall prey to the Ish who represents Esav, but rather to the Ish who represents Gavriel. So that the child, instead of becoming, feeling that he has to become the Kruvim of Horatius, can become the Kruvim of Parshas Truma. How do we do this? And I want to share with you one insight by the Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, and one insight by Rabbi Yosha Ber Soloveitchik, which I think both capture the mission statement of this conference. Says Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Bardichev in his Sefer Kedushas Levi Parshas Noyach. He writes, Rashi says, again Rashi, Rashi is the teacher of children, so he should guide a conference about Jewish children. Noyach comes into the ark when there is a flood, because of the waters of the flood. So what does Rashi say? 
af noyach miktanei amonohoya. Even noyach was a man of small faith. He didn't really believe. He had to wait for the flood to begin in order to go into the teva. Asks the badichimim. Noyach didn't believe. A hundred and twenty years. He's building an ark while the whole world is mocking him. That's cool. He didn't believe miktanei amona really. And God spoke to him directly. He didn't even have to believe. It was a direct communication. Says. When Rashi says from the Medrash, Noyach Miktane Amona Noyach had little faith, it does not mean Noyach had little faith in God, in Hashem. That's not what it means. You know what it means? Miktane Amona means Noyach did not have little faith in himself. That's what it means. He had a lot of faith in Hashem. He didn't have faith in himself. When Hashem says, I'm going to wipe out the whole world, I'm going to bring destruction to the world, all Mayach can say is, okay, boss, I'm going to destroy everybody, Malah Haaretz Hamas, or Hamas. And all he says is, okay, what do you want me to do? When Hashem told Moshe, I'm going to destroy the people, Moshe said, <laughs> if you don't forgive them, Blot me out of this book. Mecheni is the same letters like Mei Noyach because Moshe was a reincarnation of Noyach and he fixed his mistake. Says Reb Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev, Noyach did not believe in the power of the human being to be a partner to the Reboiner Shaloylam in the process of history. He did not believe in the power of prayer. He did not believe in the power of transformation. He did not believe in his own or her own ability to really make a difference and forge their own destiny and the destiny of history. This was the tragedy of Noyach Tani Amani didn't believe in himself. I don't have to tell all of you here, highly trained professionals, activists, leaders, philanthropists, rabbis, educators, therapists, and so on and so forth, how sometimes worse than the evil itself are the psychological results of a person truly feeling they have absolutely no value and living their whole life from that story. Subconsciously, not even consciously. When they get married and when they have to raise their own children and when they have to operate and be successful, it's living life from a story of absolute ktane, amona, absolutely no emun in who they are, in their koyach, in their value, in their significance. They see themselves as the kruvim, as the agents of terror. They become the agents of terror in their own eyes because their boundaries were taken from them. The serpent has inculcated his venom in them rather than the orin and the luchas infusing them, inspiring them. Rabbi Salavetsha quotes a Gemara in Mesech and the Gemara says that Hashem shows Yaakov in a dream a ladder that stands on the ground, its top reaches the heaven, and the angels are going up and down. Why? So the Gemara says in Mesech Chulin, Tana. The angels went up to see Yaakov's visage above, and they went down to see Yaakov's visage below. What is the meaning of this? His image above and his image below. And the answer is, every single person has two images. There's your image above, and there's your image below. What does that mean? We don't have one face, we have two faces. We don't have one soul, we have two. We don't have one personality, we have two. What do they say the definition of chutzpah? There's a Jew who comes to one of you guys, 
because he has a split personality and he wants a group discount. We don't have one face, we have two, at least two, usually more. What is the meaning of this? There are two images to Yaakov, there are two images to every boy, to every girl, to every one of us. There is your image above. Do you Your image above is, how does the Rebbeinu Shalom see you? When God conceived each of our children in His mind, what the Kabbalists call, Machshava HaKeduma the Adam Kadma. When Hashem conceived the existence of this child, what did Hashem see in this person? What did He see as this person's potential, as this person's contribution, as this person's story, as this person's personality, as this person's koiches? What did Hashem see in this person? That's your image above. Your image below is, how are you, the child, actually actualizes themselves, how we live our lives in this world. There is who I was meant to be, who I'm capable of being, who I was called on to be, and there's who I am. I once saw Henry Kissinger was writing his memoirs about his last night in the White House with Richard Nixon after Watergate. And Richard Nixon resigned instead of being impeached, and on the way out, he stopped at Kennedy's portrait, John Kennedy's portrait, and he started to speak to the portrait. And he says, John, why is it that the American people love you and hate me? One of the mysteries of the U.S. Kennedy is beloved unconditionally and Nixon is loathed unconditionally. Why? He was already dead 10 years. Kennedy has been assassinated 10 years earlier. And Nixon responds to the portrait and he says, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, I'll tell you why. When they look at you, they see what they would like to be. When they look at me, they see what they are. And they hate themselves. Baal Shem Tev once said, what is Gehenim? What is purgatory? What is this grand cosmic barbecue where everybody is satate? In other words, ultimate abuse? <laughs> you think in that world there's no abuse? Wait till I tell you what Gehenim looks like. It's completely not what, you know what it is? It's what the Pasuk says in Tehillim. We just said it this morning. Kale nekamas Hashem, kale nekamas haifiyah. God is a God of revenge, the God of revenge appears. Now tell me, how therapeutic is that? You want to educate a child. Let me tell you the song of the day. The song of the day is, the Rebbeinu Shalom is a God of revenge, and the God of revenge is going to appear. And you know how it finishes? Now let's go dance. Really? Imagine I tell my child, you know, your father is really a father of revenge, and he's going to appear, now let's start dancing. I mean, the psychological trauma that just that can create? We have to reframe these ideas. So the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, the Rav of Pulmar, Yaakov Yosef, the student of Hashem, quotes his Rebbe, listen to this. And he says, why does David Amalek repeat the words twice? Nekamas, kel nekamas Hashem, kel nekamas He wants to clarify what Judaism is saying. Kel nekamas Hashem, God is a God of revenge. What does that mean? Kel nekamas haifiyah. The way God takes revenge is haifiyah, by appearing into a person's life. Meaning, he doesn't take revenge, what we call revenge. You didn't listen to me, I will teach you who's boss, I will strike you, I will crush you, I will beat you. You will regret the day you looked at me the wrong way or you disobeyed me. No. Why would somebody who loves you unconditionally be driven by revenge? Why would somebody who has a wholesome identity even need revenge. 
Reb Nachman of Breslev, who had many opposers, once walked into a chasana. A yid comes over to him and says, You, you're a this, you're a that, you're a Russia. Marusha has the minig of good Jews at weddings. He screams at him, he curses him, he hollers at him. And Reb Nachman is very composed, he's relaxed. The man finishes letting out, uh, I guess, his ear. And he leaves. And it's the student of Reb Nachman says, Reb, I understand you didn't respond. But how did you stay calm inside? How did you stay calm inside? That's my passion. Reb Nachman looks at him and says, if you would walk into the wedding and somebody comes over to you and says, Chaim, you're a ganif. You borrowed from me $50,000. Pay it back, low life, despicable Goslin ganif. And you look at him and you say, my name is not Chaim. My, my name is Yankel. Oh, I'm sorry you look like Chaim. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize who you are. Would you have a problem remaining composed inside? No. Why? The guy just screamed at you. He didn't know who you were. He thought you were somebody else. Reb Nachman said, and the person who screamed at me didn't know who I was. He thought I was somebody else. In this case, he happened to know my name. He happened to know what I look like. But he doesn't know who I am. Why shouldn't I remain composed inside? This is the story of inner wholesomeness, of an inner relationship with your soul, with Hashem. You don't define my existence. Your validation doesn't create me. Your criticism doesn't destroy me. But I'm probably preaching to the converted. So the Baal says, I hope so. Why does, why is God, if you don't agree with this, then we're in bad shape. Why, why is Hashem taking revenge? I take revenge if I'm insecure and your words or your actions destroyed my core and I have no way of dealing with it but by hating you forever. Says the His revenge is of a different type. He appears in your life and then you realize what godliness is. And then you review, you look again at your life from a different perspective. Imagine I sacrifice my soul for somebody else for years. But they don't know it. They don't understand it. They never met me. And they'll do everything to backstab me. The greatest revenge, which is not really revenge, is when I appear in their life. When they suddenly realize who they have been hurting. Who is this one who wants a relationship with them? Haifia, that's the type of Nekama of Hashem. That's what it really means. So the Baal Shem Tov says, what's Gehenim? Gehenim is, you come up, and you realize, the gulf, between your image above, and your image below. You realize who you were capable of becoming, who you were called on becoming, how much infinity was invested in your soul, in your being, in your journey, and yet what you made of yourself, as a result of paralysis, fear, insecurity or other stifling emotions. And the Baal Shem Tov says the distinction, that gulf is what we call hell. Or to put it differently, Gehenim is really a form of therapy. And therefore one doesn't have to be scared of it. No, really. It's, it's about cleansing yourself from self-perception that has paralyzed you. That is all Gehenim according to the Baal Shem Tov. That's really, people should not be scared of it. Well, as scary as therapy is. Of course it's scary, but it's sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself. Get rid of the toxicity and then go free. That's what it's about. Why would a God who loves you unconditionally want to put you through a cosmic, uh, horrible barbecue? Yaakov Avinu's image above and image below matched. 
And therefore, when the angels went up and down, they saw the same image. And they couldn't get over it. But in our lives, our image above and our image below usually don't match. You know the mice, there was a rough sitting at 3 o'clock in the morning learning Gemara. A couple comes into him and says, we have a question. 3 o'clock in the morning, yeah, third world war in our house. The rough says, what happened? We're making a bris tomorrow. And the question is, who we name our child after? So he asks the mother, what do you want the name to be? She says, Moshe. He asks the father, what do you want the name to be? He says, Moshe. So the rabbi says, this is a classic machleikas. You both agree, what's the problem? The mother says, I want Moshe after my father. He wants Moshe after his father. The rabbi says, why can't we do Moshe after both fathers? She says, no way. My father was a man. She was the nicest guy in the world. He was able, he was refined, he was wonderful. And my husband's father, an addict, a gambler, a narcissist, a codependent, an alcoholic, abusive, dysfunctional, horrible. At his funeral, there was nobody to say a hesped. The rabbi said, we can't bury him without a hesped. An old man gets up and says, I'll say a hesped. The rabbi says, it has to be positive. So the old man says, it's very positive. He says, all I can say is his brother was much worse. <laughs> so the, 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 so the, I'm not going to let my baby be named after, my, after, my, after, him, after his father. He turns to the husband and says, what do you say? The husband says, I'm not going to argue with my wife if I know it's good for me. However, my father wasn't the tzaddik hadar, but he's still my father. The rabbi says, good question, let me think about it. Give me 10 minutes. They come back 10 minutes later. The rabbi gives a clap. He says, verdict, verdict in the court. The verdict is that the baby tomorrow at the bridge shall be named Moshe. Wow, genius, brilliant. They both scream, after whom? The rabbi says, for that we wait till he grows up. <laughs> and then based on his behavior, we will see. Based on his behavior, we will see. It will determine if he was named after your father. He was named after your father. We all have two images. Now let's face it, abuse. Abuse sometimes deprives our children forever. From their They don't know anymore about their higher image. They don't know. The Sarah Shalaysav maimed them, it crippled them. They think they're destined to limp. They don't know that they have wings that can fly. They think they're destined to be the Kruvim of Beratius because that man who prayed on them or that woman who prayed on them maimed them and they don't know they have wings. They don't even know they have a higher image. And Ktane Amana, they forever stop believing in themselves. And I think you will all agree with me that the objective of these two days, which hopefully, as we all grow up, will prove to be a historical shift in the consciousness of our communities individually and collectively in this entire painful Parsha that we are struggling with and dealing with, its mission statement is, number one, to be able to make sure that each and every single one of our children, teenagers, and ultimately adults, can recognize emotionally and internally not only their image below, but their image above, and be able to make peace between their image above and their image below, and to ensure that no youngster who is wandering emotionally or psychologically falls prey to the Sarah Shalesov who pounces 
on such kids. For whatever reason that is. Somebody told me that Reb Michal Ber Weismandl, the famous Reb Michal Ber Weismandl, the colonel of Racha, who was a son-in-law of the Nitrov, jumped out of the train on the way to Auschwitz, but lost his wife and children in the death camp in Birkenau, and then later founded the, the yeshiva, where was it, in uh, Mount Kisko. Michal Ber Weismandl was a son-in-law of the Nitrov, and already before the war he was very well known as a great researcher of texts. And after the war he came back for the next Yom Tif to the shul where his father-in-law and he himself were for many years in the 1930s. And before the reading of the Torah, Rabbi Michal Ber Weismandl stands up on the bimah and he says, Rabbi Isai, my shver, my father-in-law used to always get up at Yom Tif and say... I don't want to hear any children make noise at Kriya Satira. Respect, reverence, silence, decorum. If you want to make noise, you want to run around, go outside. That's what he would announce every Yom Tov. The Mechal Ber stands on the bimah and he says, but today I'm going to make a different announcement. If there's any child in the room, please make noise. Please. Make a tumul. Please run around. Please raise your voice to scream. Run, jump. Not one child made any noise. There were no children. There were no children left. They were gassed. But, Bechazde Hashem, a new generation of children emerged. And yet, so often, these children are also destined to silence. As a result, as a result of various dysfunctions, as a result of abuse, as a result of molestation, as a result of apathy, as a result of pain, as a result of combination of nature, nurture, and destructiveness that they encounter in their lives. And every single one of us who's here today ought to muster our imagination, our soul, our body, our power, our resources, physical, spiritual, financial, emotional, and any type of resource and influence we have to give each and every child a voice, their true voice, their authentic voice. I heard this story years ago. I confirmed it last year at a wedding in Los Angeles with Rav Shlema Kanevsky, Shlita, the son of Rav Chaim Kanevsky, Shlita, told me the following story. The yeshiva in Benebra called Tif Eres It was founded by the Chazaynish. There was a boy there who smoked Shabbos publicly. The Rosh Yeshiva called him in on Sunday and said, you're expelled from yeshiva, leave the yeshiva. The Chazaynish, who was the dean, so-called dean of the yeshiva, called in the Rosh Yeshiva and said, I heard you expelled this child from yeshiva today. He says, yes, you heard what he did? He violated the Shabbos publicly. It's quite serious. The Chazanish says, I understand, that's a very serious issue. But you realize by expelling him from yeshiva, he's not going to the koilo across the street. He's going elsewhere. So you realize that you're actually sending him away from the world of Yiddishkeit. You know that, he says. He can't be here. Chazanish says, I understand, but there's a mission in the beginning of Sanhedrin. Capital punishment requires 23 judges. 
This is a case of capital punishment. Not physical, but spiritual, psychological. Let's bring together 23 judges in B'nai Brak. Let's go through the situation. And if that is the verdict, fine. But without 23 judges, you can't do it. And the Rosh Hashiva looks at the Chazanish. He never heard such a thing. He says, I'm the Rosh Hashiva. It's my decision. Chazanish says, I respect you. But you can't execute a person with by one opinion. You need 23 judges to take a vote. If the vote follows you, gizun to hate. The man says, so what do you want me to do? He says, bring back the child to yeshiva until we bring together 23 judges. The man says, I can't run a yeshiva this way. I can't. Either this boy goes or I go. So the Chazanish says, the same Mishnah says, that monetary cases are judged by three judges or a yachid mumcha, one expert. He says, to expel this boy is dine nefashis. It's an issue of life and death. You leaving is dine mominus. It's a monetary issue. I am a yachid mumcha. I am an individual expert. You can leave. The man resigned. And the boy was brought back into yeshiva. For two weeks, the Chazoynish himself had to give the shir because he didn't have a Rosh Hashiva. So the boys enjoyed it immensely. After two or three weeks, the Rosh Hashiva came back to the yeshiva. I guess the grass wasn't that green on the other side. And he told me that this boy, in the Litvish yeshivish world, so to speak, became one of the great authorities because the Chazoynish understood that you're dealing not with a monetary issue or even a little short-term issue, you're dealing with dine nefashas. You're dealing with life and death. Many conferences happen in the Jewish world. As I'm speaking this Wednesday morning, there are hundreds of other conferences, meetings, board meetings, interesting meetings, retreats, seminars, workshops going on. As we speak in every day of the year, Baruch Hashem. However, we all know that this one is not about anything but dine nefashas. Every decision that's made, every resolution that's undertaken, every step advancing our work in addressing this malady once and for all and stopping a new generation of being subjected to so much misery, agony, horror and pain with fear of closing lights at night or entering into a meaningful relationship or having the ability to believe in themselves and actualize their God-given potentials is not dine mominus, it's literally dine nefoshois of people's lives and deaths one by one. And all we can pray and say together to all of us is, V'hinoyam Hashem Aleikeinu U'maiseyadeinu Koinenu Aleinu U'maiseyadeinu Koineneu as Moshe Rabbeinu said, Yehi Ratzon, Shetishre Shechina B'maisi Yadeichim B'maisi Yadeinu. May it be God's will that the Divine Presence rests in the work of your hands and in the work of your minds and in the work of your mouths and in the work of your hearts and souls and in the work of all of us. I congratulate my dear friends, Reb Mendy Klein, Reb Moshe Wolfson, Nancy Friedberg for being the hearts that brought us all together today. And finally, I once had to introduce a doctor at a dinner. A choshev, a doctor. So I started off with the Gemara. The Gemara says, The best of doctors belongs in Gehenna. The organizers of the dinner weren't sure if they should kill me with skila or sre for ergechenek. He was the honoree of the evening. And he was considered a good doctor. And basically I was sending him, you know where. So I said, before you kill me, let me explain what I mean. 
Why don't we explain what we mean? Toiv is begematria 17. Toiv shebiroifim legehenim. A doctor who only believes in 17 blessings of Shemayna Esra and deletes Rifa'enu Hashem v'nei Rofi. That doctor belongs in Gehenim. Okay, and here I introduce a doctor who believes in 18 blessings. So the doctor comes up and he says, Rabbi Jacob says, now let me tell you Pshat in the Gemara based on my experience. He says, Toiv shebiroifim. A good doctor is in Gehenim, not in the next world, in this world. A lousy doctor sees you, writes the prescription, right? As they say, nobody ever reads prescriptions because basically what he's telling the pharmacist is, I made my money, now you make yours. And Sholem Yisrael, he goes home. Toiv a good doctor, Gehenim. He or she empathizes with their patients. They're there with their patients and there's a certain amount of that pain that they become affected with. Now, I don't have to tell you that every therapist, every psychologist, psychiatrist, one of the aseris adibris of your field is a certain element of objectivity, a certain element of distance, which is obviously a prerequisite for success rather than becoming consumed by the other person's condition. However, I think we also have to remember that Toiv Shebiroifim, the great doctor, knows two things. Number one, he knows we don't bring healing. Only Hashem brings healing to our children. And our job is not to obstruct the flow of healing, to be the channel that allows the children to find their own channels of healing, to allow our youngsters to find how precious they are and how much infinite power they have, and how much love they have, and therefore how much love they can give. And number two, and number two, not from a professional point of view, but from a Jewish point of view, from a Jewish point of view, because besides so many of us being doctors and professionals, I think we're also Jewish. That is sometimes that little bit of empathy that shows the patient, that shows the person that you understand their Gehenim, and you'll go the extra mile, you'll make the telephone call. Maybe even you'll make that gesture that will represent to them that you care and you appreciate what darkness is to show them that they are not alone in darkness. Because the loneliness in the darkness is far worse than the darkness. Darkness I can deal with. The loneliness in the darkness is devastating. And toiv shebiroi from legehenen. If I can show that empathy, that concern, it sometimes makes the difference between Gehenim and Ganadin, between these Kruvim and that Kruvim, so that, that we can raise a generation of children that when Mashiach Tzitkenu comes, we don't have to be embarrassed, but we could say, Here are children who stand proud, tall, happy and wholesome, ready to change the world. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.